to show other boroughs what we're about, to show our community that we're there for them, to bring all these beautiful things to our borough as well. You don't just have to go downtown or to Manhattan to experience what it's like to race, to be part of a community of runners. Welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable, a running podcast where we shake out and purposely go off track on any and everything related to our favorite hobby. Get ready to get uncomfortable along with our guests, because growth only happens outside of your comfort zone. Here are your hosts, Inez Babea, Jamie Chen, and Nathan Schiller. Hola, I'm Inez Babea. Hi, I'm Jamie Chen. Hello, I'm Nathan Schiller, and welcome to another episode of Let's Get Uncomfortable. Today, we're joined by Alex Feliciano and Sol Rivera, who started Raise the Bronx in 2020. As their name clearly states, their goal is to bring races to the community in the Bronx, a very underrepresented borough when it comes to racing. For instance, New York Roadrunners is the biggest race group in the city, but it has only one race in the Bronx, the Bronx 10 Miler, and during the New York City Marathon, As we all know, it's the secret shame of that race that it's not really in the Bronx, just for a mile and a half entering at the Willis Avenue Bridge and quickly getting out at the Madison Avenue Bridge. Let's start with our sports legacy segment. And since we brought up New York Roadrunners, the NYRR races, let's pay homage to the Bronx. And I'll give a bit of history on the New York Roadrunners Bronx 10 miler, which actually started as a half marathon in 1995 where the winning male crossed at 68 minutes, 15 seconds, and the top female won with a time of 83 minutes, 43 seconds. But it wasn't until 2011 when the race was canceled due to Hurricane Irene, but it returned the following year in 2012 as a 10 mile race. This race falls in the start of the fall when runners training for fall marathons are at their peak fitness level. Honestly, it's one of my favorite races or probably the only one I like in NYRR. But as popular as the Bronx 10 miler is, let's dive deeper into what Race the Bronx will bring us. Alex Sol, can you just start telling us a little bit about how the idea for Race the Bronx came about and why you think it was needed? Racing in the Bronx isn't a new idea. It's something that's been spoken about between crews and different Bronx crews and different Bronx runners and passing, having conversations. And it's something that I've spoken to as well within my own run crew. And we've always talked about it, sort of like planned to do something and it just never happened. Also the pandemic, so that didn't allow for a lot of planning either. I met Alex at a Pace Runs race, and we just started talking. In the Bronx. In the Bronx. (laughs) Pace Runs had a race in the Bronx, and we just started talking when met him. But I had been following his run crew since they started because I think that they had did a race downtown, and they were tagged, and I started following them. And one of his friends and I were talking one day about racing in the Bronx, and he had mentioned that Alex had wanted to put together some racing. And I think it's just kind of like one of those things where I didn't want to let it go. <laughs> I wanted to keep that conversation going. I showed up to 718 Run on a Thursday, started talking to Alex about it. And from there, we were kind of messaging and talking about it until one day Alex was like, let's do this. I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's do it. Same thing that would happen with every other conversation I had. 
next thing I know, he's like already looking into incorporating the company and wanting to plan our first race. And I just kind of like organically happened. We connected, we just made it happen and just started. <laughs> I'm not even sure like how it happened. It was just like a phone conversation and and then we picked out a name. Neither one of us wanted to do social media. And so we had asked Miguel from Milestyle to help us out with social media. And the three of us just started to plan our first race. I don't know if I missed anything, Alex. Oh, that sounds about right. I think I wanted to do races out of my group for like our one year anniversary. And members of the team were like, it'll be too much. And I was like, okay. And me and Soul started talking about it. And I run through the Bronx every day. And I'm like, there's all these beautiful parks that nobody ever gets to see. Let's try to have races there. And it's been a learning experience. And maybe the, some of the pain points we're going through right now are reasons why there's not a lot of races in the Bronx, but we'll figure out how to make it bigger and better every time. So to date, you guys have put together three races and Alex, you just mentioned about the growing pains on like organizing and putting an event together. What has been the biggest challenge so far? One of the biggest challenges is just getting the permits, right? For the first race we did in Soundview, that one went pretty smooth. Our second race, we did a one mile in Randall's Island and that one did not go so smoothly. And for this third race, we're trying to plan our final race of the year. We're trying to do something in Pelham Bay Park. And we find out that they don't allow races on the pathways, which I find very odd and weird. You know, it's one of the biggest parks in New York City and we can't have a race on the pathways. I, I don't know. There's another alternative that we can do. And we're going to have like a site visit with the person to talk about it, but I think permitting is probably the biggest thing. And then I personally worked at New York Row Runners part-time doing events. So I have a lot of friends in the business and one of my close friends, he's like, just do it in the parks is the easiest way to get permitted. And then I think our next biggest learning is how to get streets closed to actually do races in the streets. Yeah. And to be clear, Pelham Bay Park is the biggest park in New York City. It's bigger than Central Park, Prospect Park. I run out of Pelham Bay Park very often, so does Alex. There is usually no one in the pathways. Like, it's never busy. It's busy on the weekends, people are picnicking, but the pathways are rarely used. You do have like a lot of walkers and stuff like that. So it was definitely frustrating getting the email back with all these conditions. And I think even with Randall's Park, Randall's Park was our most expensive race to put together because of everything we had to do for it with the insurance and the permit was more than triple the price than we did in Soundview. And I think we got spoiled with Soundview because <laughs> it was so easy to get the permit. We didn't have an issue with our course map because you also have to send your course map in and they have to look at the course map and approve the course map. And so we just thought, oh, doing it in the parks would be no problem. 
So can you walk us through like the whole process? Like for people, I know like Jamie and Run for Chinatown, they're working on putting events together and they have done so already. But for people like myself and Nathan, who still usually just show up to run, if you can you know, walk us through like how early in advance you have to like get the permit, like who do you contact in the parks department? Like how long did it, does it take them to get back to you? What do you have to show like insurance? Like how much is the insurance? Do they require like a certain number of people and like, do they give you like a time slot? So you go to newyorkcitypermits.com or .gov and you basically just fill in everything you just asked. So like for Soundview, you give the name of the race, the date that you want, how many hours you want to be there before for setup, how many hours for breakdown, the time of the event is going to run. They ask you how many people you expect to be at the event. For example, at Randall's Island, if you go over 300, the bigger the event, the more money the permit will cost. But in the regular New York City parks, like for Soundview, it's it's a flat fee of $25 to file the application. Then they ask you things. There's no transaction of money in the park. So if you're going to have vendors, they need to know that. They ask you all the equipment that you're going to bring to the race. If you want to play loud music or have amplified sound, they tell you yes or no. And then if it's, it's yes and it's allowed, you have to go to the police department and get that approved. Get a permit from them, which is another fee. So in, insurance, you got to go to a, like a third party insurance company. They ask you a whole bunch of questions. And then that's on a park basis. Like if Soundview Park access for one, we have to furnish one. For the Randall's Island one, we had to furnish one. And for the 100 people we thought we were going to get or 150 people, it was like $300. And that was to ensure like that also ensures the runners, the volunteers. I really appreciate you both giving us this inside look because I think it's really helpful for people to understand what it takes to put on. I'm wondering like what things you're thinking about as risks in putting on races. What do you worry about? And I ask in the spirit of you know, running should just be easy. We should be able to go to the park and do a race, but the people who are putting it on have this incredible responsibility to make that happen. Yeah, I'm always afraid that someone's going to like pass out or get injured. And for Soundview, it wasn't a huge risk because there was a fire department and a police precinct literally like a block away in each direction. So we already had that in mind that should anything happen, we would have the assistance right away. But I'm always afraid someone's going to go too hard, get injured or fall or trip. And that's always concerning to me. Alex is always like, it's going to be okay. (laughs) I tend to be the one that freaks out a little bit. And Alex is like very chill, but Putting on a race, it's it's always very concerning that something like that might happen. And we're a small business. We are not as big as these other race companies who could probably take on some liability. Race the Bronx is funded by Alex and Soul. (laughs) We're pretty much paying for it out of pocket. Have you guys ever considered partnering up or doing a, a sponsored partnership with like a nonprofit? So we haven't really spoken about it. We are thinking about it for Race the Bronx ourselves and changing our LLC to a nonprofit LLC because then we can get grants. So after putting 
the two races we put and how expensive they can run because you're also providing, you know, hydration t-shirts because everyone expects a t-shirt for a race. To go, to go back to the first question, t-shirts, very, very expensive. And the bags that we provide, the water bottles and everything, like we try to make an experience, it costs a lot, even for like 50 people, a hundred people. And you have a lot of runners who have these expectations, right? Like some people, some runners, they just really genuinely just want to support and they just want to show up and run. And then you have other runners who have expectations and we're providing an experience. And so we want to be able to, you know, sort of have some of those expectations met, but that just costs more. So it's just really about where do we want to really like put the money to provide that for the racers so that they have a good experience. Because at the end of the day, we we want our community to experience what it's like to race and what it's like to run and to be with other runners and race with other runners, regardless of their pace. I feel like right now my journalism professors, because I also did the business of sports, will be very proud that we're highlighting the beginning of how you put together an event. So can you tell us, what about the bibs? What cost of your budget is that? (laughs) How do you make them? (laughs) And also, does the entry fee in any way for the race help you kind of like even out how much money you guys have already put in? Yeah, so when Miguel was doing like our marketing and our social media, he would do the flyers for our events. And with whatever little Photoshop skills I have, (laughs) I would take that flyer and I would create the bibs on Photoshop. And then I would send that to a bib company and give them my little design (laughs) from Photoshop. And then they would clean it up. But the bibs is the least of our concerns. The bibs do not cost a lot of money. Yeah, like the equipment costs a lot. The timing equipment and all that the clocks, things like that cost thousands of dollars just to get started. And then in terms of getting the timing chips that go on the back, they're very inexpensive. It's just shortages to get a thousand chips to go on the back of a bib. Delays were out like two months. And then on top of that, the company I was using would send the wrong ones or they sent me, I ordered a thousand, they sent me a hundred and I was like, Hey, I, like I just counted a hundred, like where are my 900? He's like, let me check into that for you. And then they, they, they mail it over the next day, but I'm just like, and, and, and with our first race, a lot of these things were happening like two or three days before the race. I think the, <laughs> the bibs got lost in the mail and they went to the wrong address and we were going to that lady's apartment. Like, <laughs> Hey, we have bibs here. Can we, they got mailed to the wrong place can we get those because we got a race tomorrow oh man Um, i left like a note on the door and like (laughs) here's my phone number call me (laughs) we made the trip like three times looking for the bibs and then the bib company they were incredible they were great they overnighted us a whole new set and they did that within two days literally like a day or two before the race And then like days of the setup where I think the second race, it was just me and soul setting up most of the things. 
And then we're like, we gotta actually get people to come in at five <laughs> and help us set up because, and we feel bad because we're like, oh, we don't really want the volunteers to come that early. But it's just yeah. like it's me and her running around trying to get everything ready before the race. <laughs> and we're like putting everything in his car and my car, getting there two hours before the race and unpacking. We had a few people help for the Soundview 5K just like random friends that just wanted to show up early enough to help us, which we're so grateful for. But our second race, it was just Alex and I. And you do feel bad, like asking the volunteers to come in that early and then to be out there standing for like hours (laughs) for like the race to finish. Handling the volunteers were a big learning curve for us at the Soundview 5K. When the race finished, we're supposed to let the volunteers know that, okay, the race is finished and like kind of collect them. And I just completely forgot about them. Wait, wait, what do you mean you forgot about them? Like you just left them and you went home and then you like, what do you mean? We didn't go home. What I mean is as we're breaking down, I'm like, oh my God, I forgot to let the volunteers know because in Soundview Park, the way the route was, they were in the back of the park by the water. You couldn't see them from where we were. So I had a group chat and I should have texted everyone and said, the race is over or like the last wave is going. So as the last person goes, you can start to come in. And I didn't relay that to them. We had a cyclist sweep the course and make sure nobody was left. (laughs) (laughs) We switched from racing logistics to how you became involved in running. You both have very different paths. I started running in high school and loved it from the first practice to my first 400 meter race at the Armory. It was just a competitive sport and in high school and in college, really like a team sport as well because you're competing for championships. All of my weekends were at the Armory or Randall's Island in high school. (laughs) And then I got to compete in college at Stony Brook University. And then once I finished college, I I stopped and started cycling for a while. And I think I picked it up again in 2015, 2016, got into the New York City Marathon. And then I started working in New York Roadrunner. So working there and being around the sport again, sort of got me back into it. And I just stopped cycling completely and started running again. And I started 718 Run And I haven't stopped running. I try to run every day since I started the club and during the pandemic. And I think that's what really keeps me running now. And then I guess the racing company as well. I got too many children in my life. Can you go back for a second to when you started running and what you loved about it? I went to school, predominantly Hispanics and Blacks, and these guys were fast and everybody's trying to beat each other. And we were just always talking smack. And I just truly enjoyed that. It was the best time. But just trying to run fast was the only goal. When did you realize you were fast? Who did you beat that made you feel like you could be a college runner? We had guys running 46. I ran like 51 in the 400. I think my sophomore year, I ran 201 in the half. And at that point, I really stood with the 800. My senior year, I ran like 445, which is a joke now when you see what these kids are running in high school and breaking four minutes. But I thought I was fast at that point. And I got lucky. One of the coaches knew the head coach at Stony Brook and he put in a good word for me. And I I got to run there. My claim to fame for myself is 425 in the mile. And I live with that as my fastest time. 
I've been trying to get back to break 4.30. So hopefully next year we'll do that after all these marathons are finished. I mean, people are getting faster as they age. You never know, Alex. <laughs> oh, please stop. I'm chasing like a BQ and it just keeps going down. So, so I think your running journey was different though. Yes. So I've always, since I was a kid, loved sports and played sports growing up. I'm a softball player and a basketball player. I am 5'1 and quickly realized that basketball was not going to be in my future. <laughs> After middle school, you start to realize like, how some of these women are like really tall and very, very good. And I was like, all right, that's not going to happen. But after high school, I went working full time and sports was in the back of my mind. Didn't think that I would ever get back to it. It was just kind of like a part of me that kind of died a little bit with the corporate world. And then I have a really close friend who's like a sister who loved running. And she introduced me to running. And at that time, I was only running a mile, nothing more than that. But it came to me at a pivotal time in my life. I was going through a major life change and running just kind of helped me clear my head. And then I got injured and didn't run again for like another two years. And then about five years ago, I was getting like very anxious and overthinking and it was just not a good time. And then I had remembered what running had did for me previously and I picked it up again, started running with the run crew and never looked back. And I honestly was just running just to clear my head for mental health. And then I find myself racing. I just being around like people in the run community, everyone's like, oh, you know, do you want to run a half marathon? I'm like a half marathon. Like I barely got through a 5k, but I've been running consistently ever since for five years now, a little over five years now. And I've ran three marathons. A handful of half marathons, 5Ks, 10Ks, and running changed my life like sports changed my life when I was a kid. You said that you're 5'1", and I'm wondering, you know, New York City, a lot of good, like, basketball history. If you had had a poster of Spud Webb on your wall, because how tall was he? Maybe, like, 5'1", 5'2", and he made <laughs> it to the NBA, like... Where will Saul be today if she had had a like that? (laughs) Now I'm going to age myself a little bit. But when I played basketball, there was no WNBA. There was no talks about WNBA. So here I am in middle school, like in love with basketball, thinking that I would be the first woman playing in the NBA. But I was an average player. I really wasn't that great. Alex, I feel like you have a similar, a little bit of a heartbreak also from basketball. Oh, yeah. My freshman year in high school, I walked into the cross country locker room and I was like, nah, this ain't for me. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to try out for the basketball team. And I didn't make the basketball team. I was the second to last person to get cut. And then I was like, I cannot I can't do anything now. I got to go play a sport. And I just went into the track locker room and I never looked back. Then the following year I ran cross country, I was like, damn, I should have stood freshman year. I regret that so much. You hear so many stories of runners get into running with very similar stories where they were doing some other sport and it was going well or maybe not so well or something happened. And then they just, you know, it's running. You don't have to do anything, which is not true, but that's the perception. And when you think about bringing running to communities that you're part of, this is a common theme on our podcast. Do you see opportunities to have young people see it as 
a real sport and an exciting competitive sport, not just that place you go when you don't make the basketball team or you realize you're not going to be in the WNBA. I think that it's one of the reasons why I've stuck to running because I guess as you get older, you're just kind of like, could I really excel at any other sport? But how running pushes my body and how I feel when I get a PR, obviously it's a personal record. I'm not like breaking tape, but seeing how my body has progressed and how faster I was getting by just dedicating some time to the sport, the exhilarating feeling that I get that it, it, it's so hard to explain. It, it, it's just exhilarating. <laughs> I don't know what other word to use. Like I pushed my body to the limit and to see that I was getting faster, that just gave me a thrill. And I just wanted to get even faster and like, just keep going and just keep moving. Not to mention, like I was mentioning before, what it does for your mental, what it does to your body at my age. It's just incredible to me. And there's just so much more that you can do. And also the community that you build. I have met people in my life that if running was taken away from me, they would still be in my life. That's how incredible this community is, the friendships that we've built. For such a long time, I thought that that part of me, that athlete part of me was gone and I was never going to get that back. And when you've been playing sports for such a long time, when you're younger and when you're a kid and you just don't do it anymore, it's almost like that part of you that kind of dies and like you just never get it back. And the fact that I got that part of me back at this point in my life has just been, I've just been in awe of everything that I've been able to do, all the races I've been able to race, the opportunities I've had. It's just been an incredible journey for me. Well, so you were saying it's hard to explain that feeling of a PR for yourself or that exhilarating feeling of finishing a race. You're talking to some runners here. So I can relate to how great that feeling is, especially when you work so hard and then you run a race and then you're smashing times. So I can feel your excitement too. <laughs> Alex, I think you did something pretty similar to what we did during a pandemic. We started a podcast, but you went and started a run club. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tell me about, tell me about 718. I had the idea probably working New York Roadrunners because I saw a two-on-two track club. And this was probably in 2017, 2018. And I was like, well, I got to live in Manhattan to join this track club. And and 718 came into my head. And I was like, I could do 718 run club or 718 track club. Why 718? Because I'm Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn, so I still have 718. (laughs) So the Bronx used to have area code 212. New York City decided to change that. They they made Manhattan only two one two, and they gave Bronx seven one eight, and all the outer boroughs at some point they all had seven one eight. So Staten Island, Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx, right? I'm from the Bronx. We don't try to just be like seven one eight of the Bronx. With of the outer boroughs, I have friends who rep us in Queens and in Brooklyn, and we try to be as borough agnostic as possible but we run out of the bronx in kingsbridge a nice little pizza place called kingsbridge social club has allowed the the privilege to run there on thursdays 
but I had the idea in 2017, 2018. I didn't really see too many clubs out like they are now. I wasn't on social media either, so I didn't know what was actually going on in the running community. And then when the pandemic hit, my friends started running because the gym was closed. And I had Googled a few times, like, how do you start a run club? And they're like, you need at least three members. So at that point in time, I was like, hey, guys, I had this idea of starting a run club and it'll just be called 718 Run. Created some whack logo. Those jerseys I don't wear anymore, but you might see it out there once in a while on the streets. But we have our new logo and people wear it throughout the Bronx and you'll see it throughout the city and it's exciting. I, I like Souls talks about it. Everybody's just so nice to talk to. You can meet anybody in a run. I met Inez the other day on the phone and we spoke for like 45 minutes and that was the first time I've ever spoken to her. Right. But it, it's like that wherever you go and whoever you meet. And I feel like if I knew about this when I graduated college, which I don't know if it was really around like this, but I probably would have kept running. Wait, I want to know. So did you see anybody with the WAC logo from the first year? Do you even yeah, say hi on. to them or just like keep it oh, moving no, like that's, you don't even see them? That's like four people have it. So like his name's Jose and Olu. They they probably still wear it, but I haven't. We could make it. I got to learn how to make NFTs. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's been pretty exciting to create it for anybody who's trying to create a run club. It is a lot of work, the upkeep and the time you put into it. it it's a lot, but I enjoy it. Well, okay. Let's talk about races. So you said you never ran more than a mile and Alex, you were like king of like the 400 and 800s, but based on my understanding, you guys have really surpassed that mile. So both of you, what was your first distance race? What do you like, mean by distance? <laughs> longer marathon. than long, Oh, wow. <laughs> he went right to the half marathon. Longer than... A 5K. I did my first 10K with NYRR. I had only been running for about six months when one of my teammates convinced me to do the nine plus one and run the New York City Marathon the year after. We are both marathoners, yes. Yeah, I've ran a few. I have signed up for more marathons than I've actually ran. And I've <laughs> lost a lot of money because I don't care to get the money back. Just don't want to do it. As a train. But wait, Alex, I think you said that your first marathon was in 2017. What was that like? Horrible. I died. I think I went out like 6.30 up the bridge and then like six minutes down it. And then I was like running next to two guys and we were doing 6.30 pace and they were talking and I was just why are they talking like this is a casual run? And I was like, <laughs> I am moving way too fast right now. And I was like in the moment and, it, and I was excited. I was, I don't care. And I, I just go. And then I got to 59th street bridge and going down the hill, my legs started to cramp and I was like, Oh, this is not good. And you come out of 59th street bridge and there's so many people cheering for you. And I'm like, this is amazing. I got to keep going. But I was like, this is horrible. I had a friend on 89th. I was like, I can't talk to you. I'm dying. And then I got to Manhattan. I walked like the last six miles, like jogged half a mile, walked half a mile, but people are like, you got to run, you got to run. But, and then the 59th street, when you got to run from the corner of the park, I was like, what the fuck is this? This is insane. I don't want to be here. But yeah, I, I was training. I probably did a workout and a long run every week. I probably stopped running three weeks before the marathon. 
I still ran 334. And then 2018, I said I got injured, but I didn't. I just didn't want to train anymore. And I had my son and it was hard training with the child. And then United Half got canceled in 2020. It got canceled in 2021, I think. And then I was going to do one in Corning that I, I'm going to do this year. <laughs> and then I think I did the Brooklyn Marathon in 305. So the goal is to go sub three in October. And then I have New York City. What was it like mentally after that first experience in New York? Because it's such a common experience, but it's so personal because I feel your pain because I we've all been there. I think after any marathon you run, you're just like, I'm never doing this again. After a few weeks, the pain goes away. You forget how you felt and you'll sign up for another one like an idiot. But I, I, I sign up for them and then I'm always like, like I got two this year and I'm like, if I get into Boston, I'm just doing Boston next year and I just want to work on speed. Speaking of crazy, Alex, you got that adrenaline rush when you started you say that you're doing like six minute miles, almost mm -hmm. like the first 16 miles, right? On your first marathon. Speaking of crazy, then uh, Saul decides to run her first marathon in 2019, <laughs> Chicago. And then six weeks after she ran New York. So really? let us know about that. <laughs> so... So yes, I ran Chicago in 2019. And then three weeks later, I ran New York City. And Chicago was my very first marathon in 2019. I think what happened was that everyone on my team were like, oh, the lottery. And I'm like, what are the chances I'm going to get in to a marathon via lottery? So I did Chicago and I did Berlin and I had did London and I got into Chicago. So then I was not going to run two marathons. I'm very self-aware. And I'm like, that doesn't seem feasible. I'm just going to do Chicago. I'm not going to do New York. And I'll just kind of like do New York for the year after because I already did my nine plus one for New York anyway. So everyone convinced me that I'm a New Yorker and I should be doing New York City and Chicago shouldn't be my first marathon. And I was like, all right, whatever. I'll just see how I feel and do it. But I actually had a really great experience with both of those marathons. I never hit the wall. I don't know this wall that anybody has talked about. <laughs> like some people hit the wall anywhere between mile 15 and 18. So like after 59th Street Bridge. Yeah. So anywhere from there to mile 18 is usually when people kind of like hit the wall. New York City is very interesting because everybody says don't get sucked into the beginning of the race because Brooklyn on on 4-5 I think that thing is so fast and you, you just have all these people cheering like you get sucked into that. I did you're, not. The second half you're just done for. I did not. I had a plan. <laughs> so when I did Chicago it was one of the best marathon experiences I've had. I did my best time. My best time is still Chicago. I fueled, I did everything I needed to do. And I didn't want to PR. I just wanted to finish. And I thought I did very good for my first marathon. At that time, I was like a nine minute, 9.30 kind of runner, inching my way towards sub nine, running eight minute paces here and there. And I finished at 4.41. I did like a 10.30, 10.45 pace for Chicago. And I was in a lot of pain and I said, I'm never doing this shit again. 
I'm deferring New York City. And up until the week before New York City, I had a minor injury. My PT, I didn't think she was going to clear me. So I was like, I'm not running New York City. And she cleared me. And as soon as she cleared me, my first thought was, I'm going to run New York City. That was my first thought. <laughs> so I ran New York City three weeks later. You know, I just wasn't a fan. I, it's unpopular opinion, but I was not a fan of New York City. I, Brooklyn, I hated running through Brooklyn. I think that everyone crowding me while I'm trying to run my pace and focus on marathon was driving me insane. Like I said, unpopular opinion. I think that's going to be about like the Bronx-Brooklyn rivalry because, you know, Bronx people don't like running in Brooklyn. That's probably why, because <laughs> as a Brooklyn resident, I felt like Fourth Avenue was like great. Like I loved every part about running through Brooklyn, but you know, like you said, unpopular opinion, we'll, we'll keep the peace between the BX <laughs> and the BK. But you know, I have friends from the Bronx and they like loved running through Brooklyn. I just felt like everybody was crowding and like- That's because you go in the later heats. You got to be it the first. I just felt like everyone was coming closer Empty. and closer cheering. Like no, everyone's cheering. Like closer and closer. And I felt Oh, like that's cheering. by Williamsburg. It gets crazy there. Oh, when yeah. I've worked it, there's a bar. So everybody in that bar, they create a, a line, a tunnel. And everybody has to run through that tunnel. I don't like And then don't you like go crowds. right. And then it goes into McCarran. I do not like crowds. And I thought I was going to lose it. And I was running with a friend at the time and I just looked at him and I was just like, I just need these people to back away from me. But once I got onto the 59th street bridge, that's where I felt like some relief where there's so much space and I was fine. And then going through the Bronx, I mean, once I, once I reached uh, the Boogie Down Bronx runners, their cheer zone. And then mile 21, where my crew was, I had two family friends that showed up to cheer me. And then my strength training coach was in Manhattan, right by McGarvey Park, there to cheer me. I was like, all right, I'm going to get through this. <laughs> but New York City was painful. I wanted to quit. And it wasn't because I was hitting a wall. I was tired. And my hips were just, they were on fire. Even though my legs were strong enough to carry me through, I just felt my hips like, no, we, we don't want to do this anymore. We don't want to do this anymore. But I finished. I got my medal. But how did it feel for each of you to run through your borough? Like knowing what you know now about running in the Bronx, always being like the stereotype borough where like nobody's healthy, nobody works out. Like if you're running, like it's because you're running from the cops or whatever. Like the borough with like the highest rate of obesity. How did that feel when you're finally in your borough and to see the people that you will see every day, basically inspiring people there? Running through the Bronx in the New York City Marathon is like a little blip. It finishes right before you even know it. And it just irks me <laughs> that that's the case because it's promoted like this five borough marathon and you don't really get much of the Bronx. And there's so many beautiful areas to run through. There's so much that could be done with the route, putting races together with Alex and also running through the Bronx. We know the opportunity is missed. So aside from that, and let me tell you, there's more than one cheer zone. It's not just Boogie Down Bronx Runners cheer zone. There are other groups out there in the Bronx cheering as well. Willpower also has a cheer zone there that's 
lit with music and a DJ. And so even though it's like a very small portion of the race, it just feels really good to know that there are other athletes out there that are not running that day that are cheering you. And it's just a vibe. And I feel like it's underrated. People don't realize that there's so many other people out there cheering. It felt really good. Like, this is my borough. This is where I'm from. And having the support of the neighborhood out there for whatever area they could even be in, because apparently we're the only borough that has barricades. So that's another topic. (laughs) 2017. I was in so much pain. I honestly did not care where I was as long as I was heading towards the finish line. But I remember coming in and New York Roadrunners had this big New Balance sign and music. But I was in the first heat. It was pretty empty. So it wasn't as crazy as I think it gets now. I've worked the past three marathons and they always put me in Brooklyn. But from what I hear nowadays, the whole mile and a half is like a party or something. From what Boogie Down has done to Mile Style, to Bronx Nomads, to all the Bronx crews, they just try to go out there and make it as lively as possible for everybody. And especially knowing like mile 20 is the wall in the Bronx, I think they try to bring another life to runners now. The Japanese drummers, they're actually stationed like right when you hit the Bronx and they just beat this beautiful rhythm as you're entering the Bronx. There's just so much hype. I think the Bronx is one of my favorite parts to enter because I'm like, I'm from Brooklyn. Like half of the marathon is in Brooklyn. I'm over it. (laughs) If the marathon ever went into the Bronx, a lot of people would just be like, it's too, it's hilly. The Bronx is really hilly. So I I think like going up first Ave, I feel is like a slight incline that's like six miles or whatever. So you really don't see it, but it's there. And then I think once you get into Harlem and you're going down fifth Ave, it's an uphill, I oh, think, for, for incline. Yeah. So it's just like, and then the hills on the bridges, right? There's, there's hills everywhere once you get up there. So I think it would be more torture then. So let's talk about your coaching. You just started running five years ago, and now here you are. You are the guru. (laughs) I mean, I'm not a guru yet. (laughs) The goal is to be one one day. Yeah, so I'm coaching. I got my coaching certification in May. My friend and I, who I met through running, we both were avid readers, and we love learning. And so when she read her first marathon, she read a bunch of books about training and what programs because at the time she was training on her own so she kind of learned on her own and I started reading a bunch of articles and I really do enjoy learning about things that I love so when I fell in love with running and wanted to be more performance I started to read more about it and like how to fuel properly and how important strength training is and how yoga is important for runners and all these other things. And we had a lot of people who were training around the time that she and I were training, my friend Maria. And so because we had been reading so much, we were giving out tips and kind of like backseat coaching, I guess. (laughs) And like just giving people some advice here and there to the point where it was almost like we were coaching, but neither one of us were really like equipped to coach. But when you really think about it, like, especially in the Bronx, I don't know how it is in other boroughs, we don't have the resources as athletes to tap into. And there's also not much uptown. 
There are physical therapy offices that are focused on runners, recovery. None of those resources are available in our borough. Like there's none. There's no anything like sports related to help you improve on your craft or improvement. So, you know, it's not, and it's also not always available because everyone wants to talk about how like running doesn't cost a thing when in reality, running is an expensive sport. And we have a lot of people in our community that start to run with us that want to start running a marathon. But the cost that comes with that when you're training, sports massages, if you're injured, going to PT, taking yoga classes, strength training, if you don't have access to a gym. So her and I were talking, we're like, you know, we could do this. Like we can bring this and keep it in the Bronx. Like we've done enough reading, we've done enough research and we love this enough that we could help more people in our community and help to train them where they don't have to go downtown all the time. And on the other side of that is, you know, when I was training for a marathon, I did Nike Moonshot, but everything was in Manhattan and everything was downtown. And we have a lot of people in our communities who are wives, mothers, they have little kids and don't always have the backup to take out time to get on a train downtown and go to a training run or anything like that. So we've been talking about it for a few years and during the pandemic, it became more serious, the conversation. And we finally got certified together and we currently have a free training program a marathon training program that we're running out of the Bronx. And that's how we got started. We're going to go to the hot mic section. You each get two minutes uninterrupted to leave our listeners with one or many final thoughts about anything you want. Well, in the past, when we've had more than one person, we have gone by whoever has the earlier birthday. But given that we are in you know marathon training season, we're going to go by who has run the most marathons. And Alex, you said that you've signed up for a few, but not run all of them. So like we can get a total, like, so you guys can figure out who's going to go first and, and why. Soul's done three, I think. Berlin, I've done three. Chicago, New York. I've just, I've done Chicago, New York and Brooklyn. Uh, who, what is it? Whoever has the least goes first. <laughs> Whoever has the most, but we could do the least too. If you no. it's we could do the least. How about who signed up for the most and didn't do them? That's Alex. I signed up for New Jersey and then it got canceled because of COVID and they wanted to do it in Atlantic City, but I was like, that's too far from me. So you go first. You got three. Okay. I guess I'll talk a little bit about the community and racing. I think... What's important, especially with starting Race the Bronx, is just showing how beautiful the Bronx is because we do get such a bad rep. I feel like one of the things that Alex and I are on the same page about is just showing how amazing it is to be from this borough and how beautiful it is. I feel like our borough, along with a few others too, have been through a lot. And I think it's time for us to really shine and for people to see who we are and where we're from and what we're about. And I think it's just important to highlight what we have to offer and to show other boroughs what we're about. 
and to show our community that we're there for them. And we wanna be able to bring all these beautiful things to our borough as well, that you don't just have to go downtown or to Manhattan to experience what it's like to race, to experience what it's like to be part of a community of runners and athletes that wanna better themselves or wanna be better. And one of the things we didn't get to touch on that I wanna talk about is the kids. And we did a kids event this year and it's important for Alex and I to do more kids events and bring more free events for the kids to get them into sport. You know, we talk a lot about like not 62 and not being the unhealthiest borough in the Bronx, but there's so much more than just running to get out of 62. And I think that that's something that doesn't get talked about very often. Talking about nutrition and eating healthy and exercising and what other things that we could do, even from Race the Bronx, perspective to bring some of these resources to our races to educate people in our community about what they could do to live a healthier life, especially since, you know, the reality is being the unhealthiest borough in the Bronx has more to do with the resources we have available to us than anything. It's not just about the fact that people aren't running or that people aren't exercising. There's more to it. A lot of our neighborhoods don't have a lot of resources to be able to live a healthier life, to be able to choose between buying expensive, healthy food as opposed to whatever is available in the supermarkets. So I think that that's something that is very important. And I probably went over my time, but that's all I got to say. There's never any penalty for going over your time. <laughs> 305, just to put a clock on it. Oh my gosh. I that was great. <laughs> Alex, whenever you're ready. I'm ready, man. But wait, wait, before we go to oh, Alex, what is no. not 62 for those who don't know? There's 62 counties in New York and the Bronx is rated number 62. That's the unhealthiest county of New York. Yes, and last place in terms of health. Yeah. Stole, stole some of my stuff, but we'll do it. <laughs> We're on the same say? page. You know, if anybody listening to this and they have any connections in terms that can help race the wrongs, please reach out to us. In all seriousness, like Nathan asked the question about the youth and what we're trying to do. Like, I remember when I started running, I had some hamney down trail shoes that sh- I should have never been running in that didn't even fit me. I think they were a size too small because we didn't have money, right? The Bronx is the unhealthiest. It's also, it's not a lot of wealth, low socioeconomic status, and really trying to to get the kids involved and run and help them in any way that we can. And some of my ideas is like, how can we get stores and brands involved to give kids free shoes? Let's do events where we could get kids free shoes. Next year, we're doing all these youth events that are free. So please, I want them to be as big as possible. I want to see large amount, like hundreds of kids there. So next year, we're planning a lot more in the tracks throughout the Bronx. I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but there's a lot of races going on in September. Please go support them. One on 9-11 to support refugees throughout the United States and other countries. It's going to be an unsanctioned race. We got the Bronx 10-miler coming out. So please, everybody come out to the Bronx and enjoy it. It's going to be a very, very special day. So Alex is the fast one. He's also done... Oh, it's our races. So what did he get, Nathan? That was a 213. 
That's bad. Yeah, I messed which, up. Which, this year, right? What, what happened? I ran one. I ran four hundred meters above the Nike Soho stop. I ran around the block instead of making a right, and I think that cost me like ten places. I was checkpoint Chinatown. Ah, nice. So, what number did you come in as? I think like top thirty. Yeah. Weren't you twenty one? I thought you were twenty. No, I got thirty first place. I think I would have been in the twenties. So the goal it, is to get Alex to be in the top ten. Yeah, that's, that's my goal. I mean, the Bronx has a few fast people, but I think Alex is one of the fastest in the Bronx right now. One of them. And the goal is to see him in the top 10 on these unsanctioned races. I feel yeah. like we should be representing. We love to see more fast people who are not tall and, and, and white. We want to see that. I do want to mention, like, I don't know what the pandemic may have done but i've been going to a lot of unsanctioned races and a lot of events throughout the boroughs for five years now the last few races i've seen have been very inclusive and i'm not just talking about people of color i'm talking about pace wise as well like listen i love fast runners my goal is to be a fast runner i want to be a master's fast runner and i love seeing people's speed and everything like that but i do also love that a lot of these races within the last year have included people who may not be running six minute miles. And I love to see that. And that also makes your races more inclusive and more diverse. And also just racing wise, like people of color need to be seen on the starting line of some of these big races. And that's one of my big personal goals. I don't like talking about because it becomes a lot of pressure, but like, I want to get fast enough to win an OSR race, and I'm not going there to lose. And another reason why Maria and I have gotten into coaching, we would see these races, and we're like, damn, like, no women of color are winning some of these races. Like, no men of color are winning some of these races. Like, we want to be able to create performance runners in the Bronx to be able to race all over and at least be in the top 10 or even win one day. And I think that that's important to see that we're here too. So go back to Nate's thing with the youth, how you get kids involved is like, we got to put on races because that's the most exciting thing you could do in running, right? Like when I went to the OSR event, I've been to one where he did it out of a park and it was a point to point. But when he did OSR Midnight Half, that was a whole production that got me excited. I was like, yo, we need Nike money out here. Alex, so thank you so much for joining us. It's our 30th episode of Let's Get Uncomfortable. You've given us such amazing and unique insights into the challenges of putting on races that can help fulfill your goals and you know, bring a vision of running what it can be to your community. Really invigorating stuff, and we'll see you out there. Yes, Jamie, thank you. And to our listeners, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Uncomfortable. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on the App Store, and follow us on Spotify.